Artificial insulin was first produced in 1978 by a scientist named Herbert Boyer, who inserted a version of the human insulin-producing gene into the bacterium Escherichia coli, which then, as a byproduct of its normal behaviors, produced human insulin. The only reason we're able to manufacture insulin at this scale, in fact, is because we've been able to tweak various bacterium and yeasts in the years since, so that instead of their usual output, their usual waste, in other words, they produce the peptide hormone we humans usually produce in our pancreas, a hormone that allows us to regulate our metabolism, promotes the absorption of important things, and keeps in various ways essentially every part of our body operating as it should because of how integral it is to our synthesizing proteins and secreting of glucose. It's pretty rad that we can do this, and that Boyer had the creative insight to think, well, this bacterium is churning along in this way, no matter what. So what if I tweaked that process a little to make that churning productive for us? One way to look at this is that it is an aberration of nature, and ethically questionable. Another way to look at it is that Boyer, using what at the time were new scientific tools, created a novel symbiosis in nature. Escherichia coli flourished because of this adjustment. Its species was suddenly incredibly valuable to us, and we made sure that there was a lot of that species in the world. And in turn, it helped some of us, particularly people who suffered from diabetes, to acquire a new lease on life. The top science of the day before we had an understanding of and reliable source of insulin to distribute to diabetes patients was the starvation diet. And I'm not talking about intermittent fasting here. Many people who were put on this diet, which was considered to be the only hope that they had of prolonging their lives, actually starved to death. It was severe fasting and undernutrition, meant to give these patients a little more time, if obviously not more quality of life during that time as well. And this diet was prescribed and implemented by the foremost diabetes specialists in the world up through the first half of the 20th century. So this is very recent history. From this angle, making a genetic tweak to this bacterium seems like a pretty good deal, and perhaps a little less morally gray than other topics in this space. But it's also important, I think, to make a distinction between some of the techniques used in the world of genetic manipulation to clarify that there are differences, that you can think that producing artificial insulin in this way is good, while also being wary of other types of genetic tweaking. This clarification will also be helpful when we get to the main topic of today's episode, as grokking that topic is somewhat dependent on understanding the difference between some of these techniques and tools. Genetic modification is an umbrella term that can include many different types of genes and many different types and methods of modification. Genetic engineering, for instance, involves introducing a very specific change to a plant, animal, or microbial gene sequence in order to achieve a certain result. Boyer's manipulation of the bacterium to achieve the outcome of making it produce insulin is an example of genetic engineering. He engineered the genes to achieve that outcome, and he did it using what is called recombinant DNA molecules, 
which basically means using chemicals that exist in nature, like restriction enzymes, to stick other things that exist in nature, like portions of DNA, together. What that often means in practice is taking DNA from one species to join DNA from another species inside the genes of yet another species. This is why recombinant DNA is sometimes called chimeric DNA, because like the mythical chimera, these pieces technically come from different sorts of creature, but they fit together and still work because they're all based on the same bits and pieces. They're all Legos, you might say, and as such, they can all clip together. They just come from different Lego box sets. So that's genetic engineering, which is a type of genetic modification. Other types of genetic modification are less lab coat style science and more time and experimentation style science. Our ancestors were remarkably good at simple selection genetic modification, for instance, which basically means sorting through examples of an organism, finding the ones that have traits that we find to be desirable, and breeding those more enthusiastically than their less desirable trait-having kin. Modern dogs are a consequence of simple selection genetic modification, as are all modern food crops and all modern domesticated animals. Crossing is a type of genetic modification that involves the intentional moving of genetic material from one organism to another. This is most often seen in the world of plants, where plant breeders will swab pollen from one plant into the pistil, the sex organ, of another to see if they can create a hybrid that has desirable features from both parent plants. Interspecies crossing can work the same way, but between different species, rather than more closely related variants within the same species. This can work because the genes of the two species in question will sometimes still have components of their shared ancestor, which allows their respective DNA to still meld and create offspring, though that process can also be artificially replicated in some cases using a process called chromosomal translocation. Though this process is less commonly used because the transfer of large segments of chromosomes also often brings undesirable traits along with the desirable ones, which means the outcomes are generally less effective and beneficial than when using the less invasive and traditional methods that have long been available, or other newer, more high-tech methods, which can help ameliorate some of those downsides as well. Gene therapy is a relatively recent term, less common in the plant and animal world than the other terms I've mentioned thus far, and different in that instead of trying to manipulate genes in parents to arrive at a new something with new properties in the offspring, this method allows us to deliver nucleic acid, which are the chemicals that make up our DNA and RNA, the sequence of letters A, C, G, and T that each stand for a different type of nucleic acid, Gene therapy allows us to deliver those specific letters, those specific fundamental biomolecules, into a person. And the idea here is to try to fix a genetic problem at its source. Rather than dealing with the consequences of a genetic issue, something that is written into our human code, which then manifests in problems that we see throughout our bodies, we go in and change that code so that it does not tell our bodies to behave in that negative way. The first gene therapy trials were conducted in the 1980s, and we've done thousands of trials and experiments and procedures since then. 
In most cases, this process involves finding a suitable vector, a delivery vehicle, for this chunk of nucleic acids, these genetic letters, which in some cases is a hollowed-out virus, though instead we sometimes use a more complex method, like using electroporation, which means using electricity to increase the porousness of a person's cell membrane to help get those biomolecules where they need to go or using what's called a gene gun, which is also called a biolistic particle delivery system, and which, as the name implied, can essentially just fire genetic materials into the proper cells, using essentially the same technology that's used in an air pistol. One truly important distinction here, though, is the difference between what's called germ line editing and what's called somatic cell editing. This is a super simplified explanation, but basically... Our germline is the population of cells that we transmit or can transmit to our offspring. These are the cells that carry information to the next generation, and as such, all heritable traits and potentialities are contained within these germ cells. Somatic cells, in contrast, are cells that are, at least as far as we know, not transmitted to our offspring. This works differently in different multicellular organisms, but for the purposes of today's episode, and for humans in general, somatic cells are considered to be separated from our reproductive system. Which means that if you were to tweak someone's somatic cells, if you were to use gene therapy to make changes that could cure a disease that they have, that's a change that would affect that person and that person only. That tweak does not carry on to their kids and their kids' kids, and so on. If you were to make changes to the germ line, on the other hand, if you were to change a person's germ cells, that is a change that would carry on to their offspring. And the ramifications of doing so, of making such changes to germ cells, could be immense and long-lasting. They could be changes that we wouldn't be able to take back. And because the germline in some ways enables us to look all the way back into a species' history, to see where they came from, what changes were made along the way, where speciation occurred, and things like that, it's possible that germline editing could allow us to permanently fork the human species, either intentionally or unintentionally. As a consequence, germline editing is considered to be a process that we will not be taking lightly or doing in any consistent, regular way anytime soon. But where there's a will, there's a way, it would seem. Today we will be talking about a man who may have, against international norms and rules, and against the will of the majority of people in his profession, engineered the human germline. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from the MIT Technology Review, and it's entitled, Exclusive, Chinese Scientists Are Creating CRISPR Babies. And there were actually two follow-up pieces to this story in the hours and days following that first one, both also from the MIT Technology Review, and they are entitled The Chinese Scientist Who Claims He Made CRISPR Babies Is Under Investigation and CRISPR Inventor Feng Zong Calls for Moratorium on Gene-Edited Babies. It would be difficult to overstate the size of this scandal within the world of genetic modification, and more specifically human genetic modification that these pieces describe. 
And human genetic modification, again, encompasses many different types of gene tweaking, from very invasive to super traditional. Here is the timeline of what happened. On November 25th, 2018, just a few days before the Second International Summit on Human Genome Editing, which was set to take place at the University of Hong Kong on November 27th through the 29th, a researcher and associate professor at Southern University of Science and Technology in China named He Jiangqiu published some videos online, along with some supplementary PR information released to the press, saying that he had successfully edited the DNA of human embryos at the germline level to create twin baby girls named Lulu and Nana, who were, if he was telling the truth at least, immune to HIV and AIDS. Professor He's claims are, as of the day I'm recording this at least, unverified and unpeer-tested in the sense that the baby's parents have asked not to be publicly identified and in that the data from this procedure has not been released to the scientific community to check. But he claims that his lab took embryos from seven couples who underwent in vitro fertilization, and those embryos were edited using a tool called CRISPR-Cas9, which I'll talk about in a second, to target specific portions of the embryonic DNA to disable a gene that essentially provides an access point into the body for the HIV virus. Of those seven embryos, only one resulted in a successful pregnancy, and that led to these twins, who Professor He claims are healthy and happy and totally normal in every way, except that, because of these edits, they should be immune to HIV and AIDS, which is important, it's claimed in these videos, because the father of these twins is HIV positive, and the disease could have otherwise been passed on to these children. Now, again, this is all, at the moment, unverified. This guy has put up videos of himself reading a script into a camera, talking about this process, about these children who supposedly exist, about this whole procedure, which took place behind closed doors. And we don't even know if it's true. The hospital he used in the paperwork he submitted as evidence to the Associated Press says he didn't do this stuff in their facilities and that they suspect the doctor's signatures on the paperwork showing that there were births were forged. But that could be an indication that the hospital is trying to distance itself from a growing scandal. Not necessarily that. It didn't happen. What we do know for certain, however, is that Professor He knew that this was not going to be a popular move. And it's true. The response to these videos, to this information that he has released thus far, has not been positive on the whole. He was set to speak at the summit in Hong Kong this week, and that brought more attention than usual to that event, which became embroiled in controversy. The controversy did not, however, lead to a moratorium on the process that Professor He described in his videos that he supposedly conducted to make edits to these twins' genes. Such procedures are thought to be one of the better ways to eventually remove Huntington's disease, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, and hemophilia, among many other genetic disorders, from the human gene pool. And scientists want to ensure that someday, when we know more, we will still be able to do that. And importantly, that we can continue to do research that can get us there in the meantime. But He's work was still condemned by almost everyone in attendance because it was claimed that his work came too soon and therefore was too risky. It was wildly unethical because we don't know enough about the consequences of all of this yet. 
And behind the scenes, Professor He's funding has been cut, he has been suspended without pay by the university where he works, and he's under investigation by the university, the Chinese government, and a few international organizations that keep track of this sort of thing. The world of genetic manipulation, which, as I mentioned before, is a broad world encompassing many disciplines, is in an uproar. Professor He has been publicly castigated by hundreds of gene scientists working in China alone, and they seem to feel particularly offended by his actions, because going rogue in this way, and this work has been called rogue human experimentation by other scientists already, doing this has reinforced certain prejudices against the Chinese scientific community. Namely, that people in other countries perceive those working in China under the authoritarian Chinese government to be unconcerned about ethics and human rights, which, when it comes to the scientific community there at least, does not seem to be the case. In this and in other fields of inquiry, the scientific community tends to come first, and that community has very strict guidelines and ethical boundaries, both of which seem to have been violated by this action which in turn makes the whole country's scientific community look a bit like unscrupulous mad scientists. And as mentioned in one of those article headlines, one of the inventors of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technique, Feng Zhang, has come out in response to this news in favor of a global moratorium on using the technique to create gene-edited babies. And again, that moratorium did not happen, but this is not an unpopular opinion in this space. And CRISPR-Cas9, which I've talked about more in-depth in previous episodes of the show, if you're curious to go back and listen to those, is a method that makes use of naturally occurring repetitions in our genes. CRISPR is actually an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats which refers to these recognizable chunks of chemical code. It makes use of those identifiable pieces as guideposts, which we can then edit using an enzyme called Cas9, which, long story short, is a mechanism by which our genes allow us to gain resistance to foreign genetic elements, like those that are introduced by phages, which is a type of virus. Prokaryotes can take chunks of those phages and introduce them into their DNA giving them immunity to the same species later. And it does this using the Cas type of enzyme. Cas9 is a version of these proteins that allows us to find patterns in DNA using these repetitive CRISPR guideposts to find our way, and then slice into the code, either snipping out bits that we want to remove or installing new bits that we think might solve some kind of problem. In this case... This professor is claiming to have used CRISPR-Cas9 to slice into the DNA of an embryo to take out a piece that we know gives access to the HIV virus and then reinstall those embryos using in vitro fertilization the same way that you would normally use IVF to help a pregnancy occur. It's a relatively tame procedure, all things considered, but there are some very good reasons that, despite its relative simplicity, it's considered to be a huge violation of both scientific community ethics and human rights, to the point where the guy who figured out how to use CRISPR-Cas9 in this way is saying, no way, man, this is messed up. Let's make it illegal rather than just ethically unsound, because we can't have this kind of mad scientist bullshit happening all the time. The most straightforward issue is that we simply don't know enough about this process in humans in general or this specific use of this process to say for certain what kind of outcomes we can expect. 
Meaning, there is a chance that Professor He's work here will do exactly what he thinks it will do. Snipping out that bit of DNA could make these twins immune to HIV and AIDS, and potentially a few other diseases that use that same vector to enter the human body as well. That's certainly what he's claiming and what he's hoping for. But as with all things human and all things genetic, we simply don't know enough to say that for certain. And although there are arguments to be made that we can't ever know for sure until we try, the fact is that trying, in this case, is not just a matter of building a machine that doesn't work or attempting some kind of lab experiment that does something we didn't expect. Failure in this case means bringing human life into the world that is perhaps severely, detrimentally altered in some way. It could be that these twins, if they exist, grow up to be significantly hurt or limited. It could be that their lifespans are truncated to just a few years, or that they spend their entire lives in severe pain, or that by removing their propensity for one disease, they are newly exposed to countless others. That's the base-level concern here, and it's a very real, very good concern, I think. The scientific community, despite the fact that from the outside they can seem to be overambitious at times, actually has very human-centric norms and rules that are tightly bound up in ethical standards. And those standards say, among other things, don't do horrible Island of Dr. Moreau stuff. Don't become Dr. Frankenstein. Don't mess with humanity because first, that's messed up and horrible and you might create more suffering in the world rather than alleviating suffering the way that we're supposed to. And second, because there are just so many unknowns and potential long-term repercussions to any act when we're doing things at this level. And because it may not be possible to fix mistakes that we make if we make them, we have to move very, very carefully and slowly here. So the idea of shooting first and asking questions later is a huge no-no. Asking for forgiveness rather than permission could mean asking for forgiveness for exponentially increasing human suffering in the world, and potentially, in some cases, even ending the human race. The secondary consequences that are most disconcerting here and again, this is above and beyond that potential that this professor might have created human guinea pigs born to be studied and potentially suffer, which is already a messed up thing to do by both human and international scientific standards, and which is why he's being investigated. The potential secondary consequences include the fact that he might have forevermore changed the nature of the human species. And this goes back to what I talked about in the intro. There are relatively superficial genetic changes that we can make, which usually fall under the header of gene therapy, that alter somatic cells, structures that we have as individuals but which are not passed on to our kids. What Professor He has done, though, potentially at least, is alter the germ cells, meaning if he really did what he says he did, the genetic adjustments that he made would be passed on to these twins' offspring as well. He did not just tweak their genes, he tweaked the genes of all human beings on their germline, which, if he actually made them immune to HIV and AIDS, and maybe some other diseases, could be construed as kind of a good thing, right? I mean, how cool would that be to make all future humans, eventually, immune to all diseases and genetic disorders? And through one lens, that's totally true. That's one potential application, one potential power we may wield someday. But that someday is important here, and that someday's arrival is dependent first on figuring out whether or not we actually know what we're doing, what the consequences of making these types of tweaks actually are, and second, what such changes would mean for society when a practical safe technique is finally introduced and made available to the public. 
And these are two very different sets of concerns. That first concern is predicated on biological issues that could arise from making adjustments to human genes. Yes, there are a few traits that are identifiable and relatively simple. There's a gene piece that we know about and that we've managed to identify that designates whether our earwax is wet or dry. And from what we're able to tell, one letter in this snippet does that and only that. And if you were to tweak that single letter in that snippet, you could change someone's earwax from wet to dry or dry to wet. But, and this is a huge but, we don't even know that for certain because genes are not single property things. Most or all of them are tied to countless other genes, adding up to a bunch of properties and dispositions. So while we feel fairly certain about the earwax thing, there's a chance that by making some kind of adjustment to that chemical code in the DNA, we could accidentally trigger other changes. Some that could happen immediately and be detectable, and some that would happen later, and that may not be detectable by our current science. What this means is that we could accidentally, and with the best of intentions, permanently mess up our species' genetic code. And if we make these changes to the germline, we propagate that accident throughout our genetic lineage, potentially very far into the future. So our ambitions to adjust our earwax moisture levels could, in five or six generations, lead to a whole species, the entire human race, not being able to give birth, or not being able to smell cinnamon, or not being able to perceive the color blue. It could be anything. And because all of these things are so inextricably connected in wild and often tiny, intricate ways, the idea that we could today say with 100% certainty that changing some piece of code will do one thing and one thing only, that's a pipe dream. The benefits of mastering this realm of inquiry are massive, and in my mind at least, important. I seriously hope we will have more certainty at some point because having control of our biologies at this level would allow us to do amazing, immensely beneficial things for ourselves and for the rest of our biome, for our environment. But right now, no one who knows anything about this stuff thinks that we are there. We know a thousand times more than we knew a decade ago, but we are still just at the beginning of the beginning of the journey toward where we need to be to make such edits without facing potential catastrophe as a result. So that's the biological reason why this is a truly messed up thing to have happened. Beyond that, though, the potential social consequences of this sort of change is equally potentially devastating, if in different ways. The potential for speciation within humanity is a serious concern here, and one that I think especially now, with economic inequality being what it is, probably makes a lot of reflexive sense to a lot of people. Let's say that we develop a procedure that allows us to use this type of process to adjust some code that will, on average, increase the intelligence levels of our babies by 10 IQ points. And IQ is a super flawed measurement system of dubious value, but just for simplicity's sake, let's say that it's a relevant measurement system. The idea is that we are able to increase a baby's intelligence by some small but meaningful amount, and we're able to do so reliably without negative consequences. If that is the case, it will almost certainly be, at least at first, wealthy families who are able to take advantage of this procedure. And there's a decent chance that other potentially small but meaningful adjustments will also be possible shortly thereafter. We can make the babies an inch or so taller, give them a higher-end immune system or immunity to specific diseases. We can make sure that there's less danger of them developing certain cancers, and so on. These genetic 
benefits could add up. And because of economic disparities where the wealthy tend to marry the wealthy and the economic underclass tends to marry within the economic underclass, we could, within a few generations, actually create distinct versions of humanity divided by monetary privilege, but also by genetic quality. One group is stronger, faster, smarter, less prone to disease and disorder, and the other less wealthy, more prone to all of today's biological flaws, and less capable of climbing the ladder because of this growing wall between these two groups. Now, this would obviously be non-ideal for a lot of reasons, but one of them, which would be negative for both groups, would be the potential slowdown of natural mutations, which lead to natural evolution. And although it's popular to claim that we've put a stop to evolution in the modern world because of our technology and governmental systems, there's still plenty of evidence that this is not the case, and the benefits we gain from slow but steady evolution could be removed, leading to two versions of genetic plateau caused by a lack of genetic diversity in these two main gene pools because they don't intermingle anymore. In other words, we could see a lot of the same issues that typically emerge within inbred families, but within the whole human species. The wealthy, genetically manipulated groups succumbing to some issues and the less wealthy succumbing to others. Both of them weaker because they lack the other side of that coin. Now, all that said, it's important to put this situation into context. As Professor He notes in his videos, and this is true, many processes related to human reproduction, and especially in the world of assisted reproductive technologies, have, at their time of introduction, been seen as horrible, as against nature, as being a violation of human rights and dignity, only to eventually become commonplace and beloved and depended upon for a variety of reasons. In vitro fertilization, IVF, is one example of a technology that was originally banned and seen as a violation by many people within and without of the scientific community, but which today is common and legal and seen as a solid option to consider by some folks who have trouble conceiving for whatever reason. Mitochondrial replacement therapy is another such option, and one that was even more controversial, even as recently as this year, because it allows for three parent babies to be born which is something that was made legal in the UK in 2015, and the first three-parent procedure was performed in early 2018, successfully, by all indications. Intracytoplasmic sperm injection and pre-implantation genetic diagnosis are also still controversial topics because they allow certain typical biological processes to be skipped or a type of pre-birth genetic sorting to be conducted, which allows parents to be more particular about how their kids turn out, something which definitely has potential long-term negative ramifications, but which has also become way more common than it was a decade ago, and something that many parents who would have otherwise passed on deleterious genetic ailments to their children are very happy to have as options. In short, a lot of what we take for granted today, and consider to be normal options and processes when it comes to having children, were once considered to be blasphemous and unnatural and horrible things to even consider. Professor He's point, then, is that this process, this thing that everyone is in a tizzy about, will be the same. It's weird now because it's new, but he's willing to be the whipping boy until people realize how valuable it is, because he considers it to be that important. We need it in our toolbox, he believes, because it will do a lot of good for some families and children. 
Now the counter to that argument, coming from his peers, is that he's chosen a very strange hill to die on if he truly believes that this is a risk worth taking. After all, there are many incredibly effective treatments available for HIV these days, and that includes gene therapies which allow us to go in and make adjustments to somatic cells, so the non-hereditary adjustments, in people who have these diseases. We know how to do it, and we have done it, and now it's just a matter of making it common. So the claim that this is necessary in this case falls a little flat in the court of professional opinion. If there are other options that don't come with the risk of potentially altering the human species forever, and with tons of other unknown potential consequences involved, why not just use those safer, more reliable, less potentially devastating options instead? Because of that, many professionals in this space see this move as kind of a headline grab, as a scientist trying to justify bad behavior that he thinks will make him famous, that will help him go down in history by trying to make his actions seem like a humanitarian move. I would guess that only time will tell on that. It's very possible that he released this information in the way that he did for that purpose either way. It could be that he truly believes what he's saying in terms of justification, but he announced this via YouTube videos and a data dump to the Associated Press because he's hoping to get more funding, more government support by becoming a hero for the portion of the population that believes we should be moving in this direction that we should, sooner or later, become masters of our own genetic destiny, which is a compelling idea. And again, something that I personally absolutely think we should move toward. The benefits are just too incredible to not pursue. But in the short term, it's more likely that he's giving a nod and a wink to governments who are looking to set themselves up with long-term advantages here by making their people, their culture, superior at the genetic level by investing heavily in this scientific direction now giving them a lead over their competitors who at some point in the future, once we know more about the downsides of such programs and when it becomes commonplace, might also be moving in this direction. It will be some time before this all shakes out and we know the full consequences for Professor He and this particular procedure. But in the meantime, here are some things to be thinking about. How do we regulate something like this? that's become so achievable, the tools so widely or relatively widely available, to the point that a professor could make it happen while keeping it all totally under wraps, hidden from his funders, his employers, and the rest of the scientific community. How do we account for such things in the future? And how do we treat other research of this kind that emerges? How do we punish those responsible for such behavior, but also use the potentially amazing discoveries and benefits that emerge from their potentially horrible and definitely at least illegal acts? For instance, if someone managed to, without negative side effects, cure all disease and rid the human body of the catalysts for cancer, should we use this information, this potential boon for our species, if the person who discovered it produced a thousand children in a lab and used them as test subjects. Where do we draw the line? How do we disincentivize bad behavior? And how do we measure long-term consequences and short-term harms against the maybe potentially beneficial outcomes? And uncomfortable to think about, but important, are we willing to tolerate this kind of ethical overstep in pursuit of what could be amazingly beneficial outcomes? If we could get rid of these immensely harmful genetic ailments, would it be worth sacrificing a pair of twins to do it? How about 100 pairs of twins? 
One million people to potentially rid the human race of all genetic disorders for all future generations, benefiting untold trillions of people. How many lives can we afford to sacrifice for each life saved or made unquantifiably less miserable and limited? What's the conversion rate? And at what point do we cross over from breaking eggs to make omelets to committing crimes against humanity? Another question, how do we measure the good these technologies could do when some of the benefits will not emerge for generations? And how do we take potential long-term negative consequences into full consideration? How do we know when we have reached the proper level of certainty before acting on this knowledge, before implementing these maybe life-saving procedures? Should we care that we are stepping away from the natural order of things, by some measures at least, by learning this knowledge and using it to improve human life and remove human suffering? What is the more moral stance? To suffer as nature intends or to learn about nature enough so that we can ameliorate that suffering? How do we avoid making changes to our species based on today's biases and prejudices and preferences? Making people immune to certain diseases is one thing, but what about changing our eye color, our height, our skin tone? What about making people smarter if it comes at the cost of creativity? What about making people perfect workers, able to concentrate on complicated concepts all day long without distraction or boredom, if the trade-off is that they are unable to appreciate art or taste food or enjoy sex? How do we avoid implanting today's preferences and biases into our very DNA? How do we avoid locking those things into place, denying ourselves the ability to evolve biologically and culturally later? And if this whole situation does go as Professor He seems to think it will, and this type of procedure becomes as common and widely accepted as IVF and similar technologies, what's next? What's the next step, the next benefit, the next potential downside, the next scandal? What new discovery might we learn about in this same way, conducted by a private individual in a private lab? air-gapped from the rest of the industry and society and commonly held ethical standards. What standard might that set and what consequences might it bring? We'll have to wait and see. But it's a good idea to be thinking about these theoretical questions now before we are forced to answer them as a more practical matter because of a new bit of news that was just released. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Robots of Gotham, and it's by an author named Todd McCulty. And this is a really fascinating book. The writing itself is fun. It's a neat adventure. The characters are pretty lovable in a variety of different ways. But to me, the most compelling aspect of this book is the world that it is built. And this is a near future world that is occupied by artificial intelligences. And I'm talking true artificial intelligences that are conscious and that are independent. And essentially, these AIs were developed and then immediately put into important places around society, and the countries that really leaned into that, that began to use these AIs for their full capabilities, that had them making decisions that humans were making before, including about government and military and economic issues, they kind of dominated pretty quickly. And a lot of those countries were countries with more authoritarian regimes. So countries like Venezuela suddenly became dominant entities within 
the world. And these AIs then began to step into other positions, some of them actually holding coups and taking over governments and shutting off that country from the rest of the world, some of them taking over vast corporations and starting to launch who knows what into space, building stuff up there that people can only speculate about. And some of these AIs put themselves into robotic bodies and became essentially the same as human citizens, but artificial intelligences living in robot bodies. And as a consequence of the early years of this type of transition, the United States was invaded by Venezuela and a collective of other artificial intelligence-ruled South American countries. They take over part of the country, and the United States ends up fracturing because the U.S. passed a law that banned all artificial intelligences from the country, so they were a little bit behind in this particular evolution. And another more benevolent AI comes in and takes Manhattan from the Venezuelan alliance. And that becomes essentially a robot-centric culture in the middle of this war-torn area. And most of this story then takes place in Chicago, which is right at the fringe of Venezuelan-held space, and space that was until recently held by the United States government and then a new government that is fairly radical and traditionalist that emerged shortly after the collapse of the United States. So it's a very interesting backdrop, and it's a very well-developed, fully fleshed-out world. And the story itself is fun, but that world in which this story takes place, to me, is the most compelling part of this book. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, pick up a copy of The Robots of Gotham by Todd McCulty. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can also find a complete list of my books there if you're curious to read something that I've written. And you can sign up for my approximately twice-monthly newsletter if you are keen to keep up with my various projects and want to get an essay by me in your mailbox from time to time. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Find out more information about that tour that I mentioned at becomingtour.com, and you can say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them, and it's just Colin Wright on Facebook, if that's your thing. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.